Good morning. There we go. All right. Um, so I just want to first start off by just thanking you guys um, for putting up with me for the next hour or so. Um, I planned on going until like four in the afternoon. Matthew was like, maybe you should do a little less. Um, so we're going to talk for a little while today about family discipleship, which is something really near and dear to my heart. Um, I see a lot of little faces uh, in the room. I, my church doesn't do a, a children's blessing quite that same way, and it was really, 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 really nice to watch those little guys to respond like that. Um, teaching children young um, to respect and honor the Lord is a beautiful thing, and so I'm excited to share that with you guys this morning. Uh, my plan is to walk you through um, a passage of scripture that people are normally in their head comfortable with, uh, and I think what happens is you get comfortable with Bible stories, and then you start to forget them by accident. Um, so we're going to talk about Noah, which is something that people are typically really familiar with, and I'm going to not put a new spin on it, but ask you to look with fresh eyes at a story that people are told as children, um, and use that as a filter through which to look at our own lives. So we're going to look in two places in Noah. Normally when people talk about Noah, they talk about the ark. I'm going to talk about it right before and then right after. So today the ark is less important. We're actually going to focus on Noah as a man and the way that he led his family which I'm excited about. Um, Matthew did a wonderful job of introducing me, and so I won't do the whole, this is me and this is where I'm from thing, except to say that um, I have three amazing children at home and a beautiful wife, and I have the opportunity every day to live out what I'm saying to you. And so just by way of, of credentialing, um, everything that I'm about to say, I do my very best to live out in my own life. And I, I always wonder when, when I listen to a speaker who gives you instructions, you don't know who they are, and you have no idea what they're talking about, and all of a sudden they say something that maybe cuts the wrong way in the heart, and you're like, hmm, I wonder if they do that, because if I feel sort of guilty about it, I imagine they probably do too. And just for, by way of confession, I do not do a phenomenal job. Um, I acknowledge that. I think in the words of um, the Apostle Paul, he says, wretched man that I am, uh, who will save me from this body that's subject to death. I think it's so important for us to recognize our own sin and our own, our own shortcomings. And so I would just ask as we go through scripture today, we talk about some of the things that, that can be done well for discipleship um, to the family, especially as parents. Um, and especially as men leading homes, I just ask that if, if something gets said that you're maybe like, hmm, I don't love that so much, that you take it up with Jesus, um, because that's what God's word tells us. And so I'm going to do my best to, to exhort that today. Um, if you're the, the kind of person that likes to follow along, um, there's Bibles in the pews around you. Uh, we're going to be in Genesis 6 and then also in Genesis 8 uh, together this morning. They'll also be on the screen if you can follow along there as well. So we're going to start in Genesis 6, uh, verse 5. We're going to read 5 through 14 and then skip immediately to uh, chapter 8, verse 15. But first, I'd like if you would just join me in prayer uh, before we go to God's Word together. Heavenly Father, as we approach your Word this morning, we ask that what we don't know, you would teach us, that you would reveal to us through your Word exactly what our hearts need this morning. Uh, we ask that what we are not, you would make us, that you would change us to be more like the image of your Son, that what we would need, you provide, that what we're longing for, you meet us and walk us along so that we could be closer to you, in all things, we thank you that we could gather this morning. I just ask that you would bless this time, that your spirit would be active and working among us, changing hearts and bringing them closer to you. We thank you, and we praise you in the beautiful name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, so beginning in verse 5, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, and for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress. 
make rooms in it, and coat it with pitch inside and out. And now in chapter 8, verse 15, where we're going to start. Then God said to Noah, come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number upon it. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives. All the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all of the birds, everything that moves on the earth, came out of the ark, one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures, as I have done. This is the word of the Lord. So we're going to do um, a, little, a little journey together, if that's okay. I'm going to answer, I think, three main questions as we go through Scripture today. Um, those three questions are, who is Noah? Who are we? And then uh, we're going to talk about what family discipleship is. And then there's a caveat that I want to just add. Um, and that caveat is that something that's super important to the family and something that I think is sort of maybe under attack is a strong word to use, but I'm going to use it. Maybe under attack in our society today, especially in, in Western culture, is the idea of men. Um, and so there's not like a fourth point to the sermon necessarily, but I just would love um, if you would give me the grace of not being super aggravated when I talk specifically to the men in the room a couple of times today. Um, so we're going to do that. We're going to talk, who is Noah? Who are we? Family discipleship. And uh, a little note of pressing in and a call to action, if you want to call it that, for the men in the room this morning. That's my plan. Um, I'm glad you're along on the journey with me. We're going to start with feedback. We're going to start with who Noah was. Um, and what's interesting is typically when you hear about Noah, there's a particular way that it's usually said. He's considered one of the, the heroes of the Old Testament. He's, he's lauded as one of the, the, the great leaders of the, the Jewish faith. He's lauded as one of the original men of God. And, and so that's usually how he's referred to. And it's interesting because that's not actually how the Bible refers to him, but we've kind of taken this stance of like, no, it was great. Because somehow or another, we've decided that in order to have favor with God, there has to be something about us that makes us worthy of that. And so I'm just going to start off by saying nobody's worthy of that. And so I want to take a closer look at Noah. And so what, I'm, what I'd like you to do um, is go with me in Bibles that you don't have. This might be the first time and probably the only time this ever happens. In maybe any church, but especially this one, I'm going to read from some children's Bibles. Yeah, this is what I want to do. We're going to do a comparison. This is the Just For Me Bible. And now, so I'm not sitting here telling you never to use a children's Bible ever again. I just want to paint a picture for you of the way that family discipleship is lacking and how necessary it is. So when I say family discipleship, which we'll get more into later in the sermon, it's important that we lead our children well from the home, not assume that schools are doing well if we send our kids to Christian schools, and not assume that Sunday school and VBS, which are all wonderful things, are doing it for us. It is our responsibility as parents, and men especially, to well lead our families, because the world is not designed to do it for us. Um, as we open these little Bibles, I want you to have this particular thought in mind. Um, there were churches in Rome. In the early church, there were churches in Rome, but in general, the education in Rome was Roman. It was Roman education, and if you send your children to Rome, you will produce little Romans. I just want you to have that thought in your brain. Um, so, okay, according to the Just For Me Bible, it says, Noah was a good man, but many people on earth were not good. That's how Noah is described. The Read and Share Bible says there were many people on earth, most of them were bad, but one man, Noah, was good, and he obeyed God. Then we have... The Jesus Storybook Bible, which is what my kids use at home, or they did when they were younger. When you read the section that they call a new beginning, which is Noah's section, it says, now Noah was God's friend, which was odd, because in those days no one else was. Can't write this stuff better myself. Then we have the Laugh and Learn Bible for kids. Uh, this describes Noah this way. It says, and their kids had kids, and their kids had kids, and grandkids, and great-grandkids, and great-great-grandkids that spread all over the world, and sin was spreading with them, making God's world an ugly place. God said, enough, it was time to start again, and God decided to pick one person 
catch this, one good person to start his world over again. But who in all the world of sinning and fighting was anyone good and kind enough to trust with such an important job? Yes, God chose Noah. Which is beautiful. Don't get me wrong. God chose Noah. Noah was great. I'm sure that he was. Probably a nice guy. He was probably cool to live around. He probably had like a super nice lawn and he probably took care of his kids really well. I know that the ark was, um, if you've ever seen like pictures of how big the ark probably was, and you look at a Boeing 747, if this is the, the ark, this Bible's the ark, a Boeing's jet is like this big in comparison. That's the like ark jet plane. This is how I got here. This is what he built. And his kids helped him. I can't get my kids to help me with the lawn sometimes. He got his kids to build an ark in the middle of the desert. So he was doing something right as a family man, um, but I just want you to hear, we're going to go back into the Bible for a second, and I want you to hear how the Bible describes the world and then where Noah lands. So all of the children's Bibles and most children's stories tell, tell it this way. God saw Noah, he was great, everyone else was bad. But I want you to see the flow of things from Scripture. So we're going to go back into Genesis 6. It says, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become. So the word man there can also be translated as people or humankind. So everyone is wicked. Every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. So if you're keeping track, that's everyone on earth is evil and wicked always. Noah hasn't shown up yet. But if everyone is wicked and Noah's alive, then I imagine he's included or there'd be a little star at the bottom. So then it says, I will wipe away everyone from the face of the earth. I'm paraphrasing. And then he says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, which in English sounds like, oh, he did a good job. And God was like, I like this guy, but that's not, that's not how it happens. And so in the Hebrew... Um, that sentence reads a little differently, and I'm not going to pretend that I speak Hebrew and read it to you. Um, but basically, a rougher translation might be God decided to place grace on Noah. So very much like when we read in the New Testament that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While Noah was still sinning, Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit, pick that one. So it's sort of like when all three of your kids are running around like crazy, but you need one of them to help you with something. You don't really have a favorite child. You just pick one. You guys are looking at me crazy because some of you are sitting next to your children. Don't, don't ever like raise your hand or laugh if your kids are next to you because they'll think that I was kidding and you do have a favorite. Just a pro tip. Um, so that's what happened. It's not that Noah was God's buddy. It's not that everyone was bad, but there was this cool guy. That's not how it was. That's not how Noah was. And so just as a word of encouragement for you this morning, if you have ever felt like you were unworthy of the calling that God has placed in your life, and just for clarity, parenting is a calling. Children are a blessing from God. And so if you're a father or if you're a mother this morning, you are blessed by God to have that opportunity. It is a weighty one. Feel the weight of that on your shoulders. That's why men have broad shoulders. Maybe it's not, I'm just using that. Um, but it's, a, it's an important calling that God placed on you. Noah was not qualified for this calling that he was placed on. In fact, Noah was probably the opposite of qualified. Um, and so we're going to talk through a little bit about where Noah was, because you don't, you don't read that. You kind of have to puzzle piece together things based on other pieces of scripture. And so what I want to do is sort of introduce you to who Noah was. In Genesis 5, which we didn't read, it says this, a man who will comfort us in the labor and painful toils of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. That's how it describes Noah. So Noah is actually introduced and you learn more about him in Genesis 6. But there's a genealogy in Genesis 5 that I'd like to comb through with you really fast. So if you still have your Bibles, just go to Genesis 5. I'm going to paraphrase the, the entire chapter, um, sort of rapid fire, because genealogies are stressful. And so I'm going to shorten them for you. Has anyone ever read through numbers and you're just like, and this person, and then this person, and then this person, and then this person? And anyway. Okay, Genesis 5, paraphrase. God created man in his likeness. When Adam was 130, he had a son. Adam lived 800 years, and he died. That's the pattern. You're going to hear me repeat it like seven times. Seth lived 105 years. He was the father of Enosh. He lived 807 years, had other sons, and he died. Enosh lived 90 years. He was the father of Kenan. He had other sons and daughters. He lived 815 years, and he died. Kenan, 70 years, father of Mahalalel, 840 years, died. Mahalalel, 65 years, father of Jared, 830 years, died. Jared, 162 years, father of Enoch. Fathered other children, 800 years, died. Enoch, 65 years, father of Methuselah. 
300 more years, died. But through, you, you follow me so far? So the, the Bible is God's word, right? So everything is intentional. So I want you to hear when, when there's a pattern change, that's important. So when you read genealogies, the, the important part is not maybe the years or the number of times something's repeated, but I want, I want you to understand as your own personal reading of scripture, the genealogies are cool because they're like puzzles you have to solve because they're really specific patterns and then suddenly the pattern changes and that's your cue to be like, oh, that's important. So Enoch had Methuselah, Methuselah, 800, 187 years, he fathered Lamech. 782 years later, died. Lamech, 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah and said, he will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. After Noah was born, Lamech lived 595 years, had other sons and daughters altogether. Lamech lived 777 years, and then he died. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So you get generation after generation after generation. Father, son, father, son, father, son, father, son. Lived, died, lived, died, lived, died, lived, died. But Noah was this guy I want to tell you about. So there's something really important that you need to understand about Noah, that he's a big deal in the story, but not for the reasons you might think. He had a purpose, he had a calling on his life, and that's what we read in Genesis 5. But it wasn't because he was great, he wasn't righteous, he wasn't God's friend. There was a calling on his life. So that's what I want you to think about as you think about what it looks like to lead well in your homes. There's a calling on your life, and there's just not, you don't have a section in this book that necessarily says specifically what that calling is. And so we have to take this whole book as a whole and know that when there's a man in here that is talked about, he's an example of how God uses people, not an example of how to be. I'm going to say that one more time. He's an example of how God uses people, not an example of how to be. Noah's not a hero. Noah's not one of the people you should look back out and go, I want to be like that guy. We're going to talk a little more about Noah. So I want you to, the, the filter is Genesis 5, 29, right? Uh, he will comfort us in the toils, the, the painful toils. So like another word for toil, work, the painful work and labor that we have to go through, especially as men. So if you're, if you're a fan of the book of Genesis, um, Adam's created, he's taught about God, he's put to work. So he goes to school, that's the pattern for the kids in the room. School, God, work. Not school and then video games until you're in your 30s and then get married. That's not the pattern. The pattern is learn about God, get a job. You're welcome. So Noah, not a great guy, has, has a work ethic though, and he has a calling on his life. This is the word in Hebrew for his name that says Noah, because all of us can read Hebrew, so I'm just going to tell you. It's Noah, it's got a little like flummy sound at the end, so in the Bible if you're reading it in Hebrew, it's Noah which is just more fun, um, but it means rest. So he's supposed to provide us rest, but then the calling on his life is to not rest at all. And so I think sometimes God has a little bit of a sense of humor, or you can read into that in a more specific way and think, well, what is it that we're supposed to rest from? So the world at the time, remember, was not a great place to be. Every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was always evil all the time, which is still the same. Like every, every inclination of our thoughts are evil all the time. Have you ever left your kids alone long enough that they start to get into trouble? You can raise your hand if your kids aren't in the room, it's fine. My kids are watching on TV maybe, so I'll do it. My kids, I want them to you leave them alone. They just, they start to fiddle with stuff. So I want you to think about this. That's just the natural posture of people is if you leave them alone long enough, sometimes they get into trouble. And at the time, people were living 800 years. Can you imagine the kind of trouble people would get into if you let them live eight times longer than the oldest person ever to live in our current generation? Can you imagine the problems that would get caused? Like that hurts my brain to think about the situation that Noah lived in. So like we look around our world and we're like, man, the situation in Ukraine's rough and there's like starving children. But at least like the leaders of those countries aren't living 839 years. So we, we can take comfort in that. Noah didn't have that kind of comfort. So in his time, people lived a long time. They got in lots of trouble. And so things were bad. And so Noah's goal was rest. And so I like to think of the flood as like a long nap for the world. And then afterwards, God decides no one's going to live that long anymore. And so God's like, you know what? Maybe 800 years is too long to let people be bored. Anyway, so Noah's name means rest. There's a calling on Noah's life, just like there's a calling on each of our lives as parents and each of your lives as children. And then here's what happens. He gets called a righteous man. Genesis 6, verse 9, he's called a righteous man. And you're like, hold on. 
I thought you just said every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was always evil all the time. And so I want you to really press in on this idea. God chose Noah and gave him this qualification. Does that sound familiar? Christ chooses us and gives us his righteousness and takes the sin upon himself. So God doesn't tell Noah, hey, go fix things. God says, trust me, I've got a plan. And so all the way back in Genesis 6, press forward all the way to 2022, I want to say to you guys, just trust God because he has a plan. And he did say he's not going to flood the earth anymore, and so you don't need swim trunks or anything, but, but he has a plan. His name is Jesus. Spoiler alert for the end of the sermon. And we just need to trust him in it. But I want you to think about what it means to be able to live according to God. Because what happens is he starts to walk with God. God puts a calling on his life, and he says, follow me. And Noah says, okay, because I feel like if you heard the audible voice of God, you'd probably have a change of heart too. Just a thought. I don't know. I've not heard God ever speak to me audibly, but when Moses saw the back of God's face, his hair changed color, and he walked down a mountain terrified. So I feel like if somebody spoke to you in a way that shook your entire soul, things would change. And so Noah's life starts to change. Um, he's called a righteous man, but I want you to think about societally who Noah was. So I feel like I'm doing a lot of like attacking on this guy, but I want you to really understand there's a calling on your life. There was a calling on his life, and it's not because he was qualified, and it's not because you are either. So here's the Fertile Crescent. This is the area that Noah lived. Noah and his family lived in a place called Ur. Ur's right there. Um, if you've ever read through the Bible for more than like 20 minutes, you've probably encountered the idea of Babylon. Show of hands, Babylon. Not like, it's not Disneyland. Um, it's, it's used as a metaphor in Revelation to describe the absolute worst of people. Um, it was a kingdom that conquered and destroyed the temple in Israel. It's like not a great place. You know where Babylon was? Just for like the sake of discussion this morning, here's where Babylon was. So that's the city of Babylon. But even as far back as Genesis, there's this understanding that major cities have this like overflow where they influence the cities around them. And that happens today too. Like if you live in the suburbs of New York City, you get people who don't want to live in the city who have a city lifestyle. You guys live near Chicago. And so you probably know someone who's very city. And you probably know a few people that don't live in the city on purpose. You might even be one of the people that don't live in the city on purpose because the city is maybe not the kind of place that you want to live. Babylon is not the kind of place that you want to live. Um, in fact, the idea of Babylon is not the kind of place you even want to have in your brain. And so living in the actual city, probably not the greatest idea. But there's also this, this second concept. If you follow Genesis closely enough, there's Babylon. And then there's the region of Babylonia which is the place that Babylon's reach extends to. So all of the places that, so like all the suburbs, this is the suburbs. Where's Ur? So just for some perspective, without getting weird and gross, there was a different kind of people in Babylon. So like we look around and we, we know that there are people that don't follow God and we know that their lives are maybe not necessarily the most, we'll call it biblical. Um, but Babylon had a very different culture. They were pagans. They worshiped demons. They worshiped false idols that they created that I would say are inspired by demonic things. And they sacrificed to those idols, and they sacrificed to children and animals and plants. It was just really, really awful. So, like, imagine your child on their worst day, and you're like, this is how I'm going to show favor to God. I'm just going to end his life. This is the kind of culture that Babylon was. This is where Noah lived. This is who Noah's family was. This is the line that Noah came from. These are the neighbors Noah had. Sunday nights, they would worship by picking the least favored child, and that child just didn't go to school on Monday. He was not a winning dude. He was not the favored son. He wasn't righteous. And so I, I, what I want you to hear from that, the reason I'm pointing all this out to you is we get it wrong sometimes when we talk about Noah as, a, as God's friend or as a righteous person. And because we get it wrong with Noah, and we get it wrong with David, and we get it wrong with all the other heroes of the Old Testament, we get this weird feeling that maybe we're not living up to a standard. And so I'm here to tell you guys this morning, men especially, there is a standard. God has a high expectation of you because he's given you children. He's given you families to lead. If you don't have children yet, if you're not married yet, you still have that standard because you are a brother to other sisters in Christ. There are children around you. There are women that need cared for. Men have a very special calling in this world. 
And so what I want you to hear is not that there are some men that are qualified and there are some men that are not qualified. What I want you to hear is that all men are unqualified, yourself included, myself included. I'm sorry, be mad at me if you want to. It's what God said, not me. Take it up with this guy. But we're all unqualified, but we still have the calling. It's sort of like if everyone showed up to NASA with no college education for the same job and they hired everyone and just expected greatness. Would anybody pull off that successfully? I mean, I watch this like a rocket scientist in the room. I don't know you guys. Okay, I certainly wouldn't. I'm not a scientist. But that's what's happening. God is saying, hey, this is what I want from you. And you're going to mess up, and that's okay, because we're all sinful, and that's why I sent you my son. But you're going to do this. So he says to Noah, you're going to do this. You're going to build an ark. I don't know if you know this. I'm going to leave the map on the screen for you guys. I don't know if you know this about this area, but it's in the middle of the desert. Has anyone ever been to the desert? It doesn't rain really in the desert. That's why it's the desert. This particular desert, if you follow the Bible, now again, the Bible is not a history book necessarily, and so it doesn't chronicle the weather quite so specifically, but if you trace through the Bible, there's been no rain yet. And so Noah gets a calling from God. God says, hey, you're going to follow me. You're going to build an ark. Here's the dimensions. You're going to put animals on it, and you're going to survive the flood. And God says to, his, to his, his now son, Noah, do this. Noah says, okay. And he starts telling people while he's building the ark, guys, there's going to be a flood. Repent of your sins. And they're like, what rain? You ever tried to tell your neighbor something and they're just like not following along and it's because they didn't see the movie you saw or because they don't live in the same like area that he's like it's gonna rain and they're like what's rain it's gonna flood we're all gonna drown what's that mean can you imagine being his wife so like talking to the ladies in the room for a minute your husband comes home i have this great idea and you're like you are speaking chinese i don't know what you're talking about this is the situation noah faced and he did it about as well as he could he got his sons he built an ark and the whole time he's building hey guys it's gonna rain what's rain so what I'm suggesting is that Noah took his calling very seriously, and no one else listened. Have you ever, like, mentioned your faith in a public setting and someone gives you side-eye? Or you felt, like, uncomfortable, you walk into a room and you just get a weird sense about things, and so you tuck your necklace into your shirt so that no one sees the cross? There, there's something going on in our world today. We are living in this, this, this culture that's sort of like the influence of Babylon, and what I'm telling you guys is you have an ark. It's called your family, and you need to build that ark. It's important, and it's going to show. It's going to be super obvious, and that's okay because building and improving, those things are necessary for the honoring of God and the living into of the calling that he has in your life. So we've got scaffolding. You guys are working on some stuff here. You could easily hide that, and construction would take infinitely longer because you have to take it up and put it down, but you could pretend that you're not working on stuff, or you could live into the reality that there are things that need work in everybody's lives, just like there are things that need work in buildings, and there are things that need work in your families. And so as you work on those things, you press into the instruction manual. There's like a, a turn of phrase in society, especially here. They're like, oh, they don't give you a manual for parenting, so you just got to figure it out. That's a lie. It's a lie from the devil. It's right here. This is the manual. You just read it, and God speaks to you. Now, you're not going to get to like page 902, and it's going to say, this is the appropriate way to swaddle your child, and this is the right kind of music to make them listen to, and this is where you send your kids to school. But it is going to tell you the right way to honor God, and if you've got God as the center of everything, then everything else sort of works itself out. So that's what Noah did in the place that Noah was placed. And so the important takeaway, the big idea here, is not that Noah was a hero, but that we have a sovereign God who's got things handled. And that's what it says in Genesis 6, verse 7. Just look at it one more time. It says, you know, everybody's bad. And then it says, the Lord said, I will wipe mankind, whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures who move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. He can do whatever he wants. So like that, you can read that passage and think, oh, God's going to destroy stuff. Or you can read the part where he says, where I've created, and really understand, like, there is a sense of sovereignty that, that we don't usually think about God having, and he's doing that to help us understand that this is what he's done. He's made this, and it's his, and he's working on it, and you are part of the things he's made. You're not separate from it. You are part of the things that he's made, and so just like with you as a child built Legos, and you expected those Legos to obey your every command because you are the sovereign authority over your Lego set, you wouldn't look down and go, oh, that one's really cool. It can do whatever it wants, and the rest of this I'm going to control. That's not how it works. They all obey you because they're sovereign, and that's how God is. We're all little Lego pieces. You're welcome for that visual. The important thing is 
that we follow God regardless of where that leads. Because if you're building an ark in the middle of the desert and then it does rain, I mean, hopefully you don't stand up there and go, I told you so, because that would be awfully sinful of you, but at least you'd feel good knowing you were obedient. Now, the Bible doesn't talk about anybody else who was following God at the time. That's sort of the point of that story is with God only chose the one family. But imagine if there were two and only one of them listened. Can you imagine being the other one? Then there's like Noah and then there's like Steve. And Steve heard God say, build an ark. And Steve was like, yeah, I'm just not, I'm not feeling carpentry right now. And I'll be honest, I have never heard of rain. And so I'm not going to do this thing you ask of me. I don't know. I'm just not going to do it. I'm going to sacrifice my kid. I'm going to go to McDonald's. And then it rains. And he's like, oh, this is rain. Oh, this is rain. You ever had that feel like you feel like God's leading you somewhere and you don't do it. And there's that pit in your stomach as you realize why you were going in that direction. That's what I want you to hear every single moment of your life is that if you hear a calling, if you're reading something and you're like, I feel this weird conviction that maybe I should do something differently, do something differently. Let it be uncomfortable. That's fine. Because the God who is sovereign over everything he created, the animals in the, in the air and the ground and all the things, he's, he made you too. And he gave you specific instructions. So if he gave you specific instructions, then it's not just enough that we talk about who Noah is, but it's important that we contextualize a little bit. Who are we? Because we're not, it doesn't list us. There is an Adam in the Bible. It's not me, in case you weren't, weren't curious. Um, I know we're, we don't know each other, but that's not a different, different guy. Um, so we need to talk about who we are for a minute. So I'm going to, do you guys like statistics? Is there any numbers people in the room? A couple of you are watching, on, watching online. Numbers people, I like numbers. I'm really bad with numbers, and so I Google them. I don't add them or subtract them. I just look them up. Um, and so I'm going to share a few of them with you. Um, if this makes you sad, it should. And if this doesn't make you sad, you should see the sentence I told right before that one. Um, we're going to share a few. 50% of U.S. marriages end in divorce. That's a conservative estimate. I found a couple that were upwards of 70%. I just, they weren't consistent. That was an outlier. At least 50% of U.S. marriages end in divorce. 70% of U.S. families don't eat together. Which, like, okay, we don't eat together. But think about it. With all the busyness of your lives, that might be the only time you get to see your kids and breathe at the same time. So 70% of U.S. families don't eat together. 10 million-plus married people are abused by their partner annually. The person you decided to spend your entire life with abuses you physically, emotionally, mentally, sexually, spiritually, abuses you. 10 million-plus people annually. 30% of fathers have no relationship with their children. Like at all. While we're sharing... I have a relationship with my kids, but I don't have a relationship with my father. I don't share that with you to get everybody to go, oh, I share that with you because regardless of the situation you walk into as a parent, you are not dictated and decided on by anyone other than God. And so if you walked in and you're like, yeah, my family upbringing, which is bad, and so I'm just not qualified to raise my kids well, it's a lie. Don't tell that to yourself. 31% of parents have no relationship with their adult children. Can you imagine that? 31% of parents in this country do not speak to their fully grown adult children. They don't see their grandchildren. They don't see their great-grandchildren. They don't see their kids live into the callings that they had on their life. Like, this, this is crazy. We're not done. Sorry. 42% of Americans believe in more than two genders. I know this is a weird shift in the statistics. I just want to point out there is a depravity that extends into the home and branches out into all kinds of weirdness. God said he made man and woman in God's image. There are people that believe there are upwards of 70-something genders. I don't know how to count them all. It's weird. Keep going. 49% of Americans believe that sex on the first date is sometimes or always acceptable. So God says, wait till marriage. The world says, it's fine. And almost half of the people in our country are like, yeah, it's probably fine. 79% of Americans believe sex is simply casual, that it's like not important that it's just a thing. It's another qualifier that you can just pick people on. Why am I doing all these like seemingly unfamily-related things? I don't know if you've ever like experimented on how to start a family, but there's really only one way. Spoiler alert. Um, you make children in a particular way. That's not what the sermon's about, but just so that you understand how these are connected. These are things that God designed for men and women to raise families, to create families, to build legacies, and we live in a culture that's like, nah, do whatever you want. 40% of Americans believe the institution of marriage is becoming obsolete, which is maybe okay if you believe that the government created marriage. But I don't know if you know this, Genesis 2 is when marriage was created. Man and his wife were designed, husband and wife, man and woman. They, they occur at the same time in Genesis 2, and God says that you will leave your father and mother, which they didn't have. 
Like, I don't know if you've ever thought about that when it says, and this is why man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and they will become one flesh. Adam and Eve didn't know what fathers and mothers were because they didn't have those. But God said it to them anyway. Because what's important is not just what's happening right now, but what's happening to your next generation and that generation and that generation. It's a legacy that you're leaving for people that I want you guys to think about. And 40% of our country believes that marriage is not a thing. So those were like general statistics. And so you're probably thinking like, Christianity is probably on the other side of this curve. And so I'm just going to hurt your feelings for a minute. Um, because remember, there aren't heroes except Jesus in this book. Every inclination of the thoughts of every human heart is evil all the time. So 56% of U.S. Christians believe in a biblical God. Does that hurt your brain for a minute? Christians in our country, and just over half of them, think that what this book says is accurate. 27% of U.S. Christians believe Jesus was a good teacher, but not divine. What does that do for your morning? For the record, not in that statistic. I've included myself a couple of times, not in this one, just for in case you're wondering. 57% of U.S. Christians think casual sex is sometimes are always acceptable. So the Bible says don't, and they're like, I mean, it's a suggestion. So before we move any further than that, I just want you to understand, if the Bible says not to do something, there's not a star next to it that's like, if that's okay. God's like, here's what I'm saying, pay attention. God wasn't like, build an ark if you want. Raise your family if you think that's a good idea. God says, do this. God speaks, you listen. That's how I'm going to end the sermon, so spoiler alert for a few minutes from now. Anyway, um, 35% of U.S. Christians believe in more than two genders. So I told that statistic earlier, and people are like, no, that's not what the Bible says. Well, actually, a little more than 30% of Christians think that even though the Bible says there's only two, that it's maybe wrong. It's, it's a weird place that we're in right now, and so I don't want you to feel detached from it. I want you to understand we live in Babylonia, just like Noah lived in Babylonia. Like, we live amongst people who are not focusing on God. And so I don't want you to get lost in the fact that the society is not pushing you in the same direction God is, and I want you to know that that's okay. Because eventually, it'll rain. And conspiracy theories are only theories until they come true, and then everyone else is wrong. So if anyone ever looks at you and says, oh, you believe that God stuff, isn't that super, like, old? Isn't that book, like, thousands of years old? You say, yeah, the Bible is always timely because the Bible is timeless. And you don't have to read it. That's fine. But I do. And I'm going to follow it. I'm going to build my boat. Build the boat. So that's who I need you to think about who you are. Because as men, especially, talking to you guys for a minute, if you're leading your family with the maybe it's okay mentality, then you are raising your children to have no standard. And if you're going to say that this is a rock on which you stand, and then you don't stand on it, what a bizarre and confusing message. Can you imagine if Noah was like, here's the boat that's going to save everyone? Not getting on it. Everyone else can. I like to swim. I'm from Florida. We like swimming. I thought that would go over better. (laughs) This is the reality that we live in, and I want you guys to hear this. You have a boat that you need to build in your family. These children need to be raised by this book, and if you're not living by it, you can't expect them to. And so what I'm telling you guys is this. If you're going to raise children, if you're going to take that calling on as your lives, this is your manual. Build your boat. God says it's going to rain. Believe him. Because I don't know if you noticed this or not, but everything God says happens. God said it's going to rain. Noah wasn't like, I don't know. Jesus said, I'm going to die. Everyone else went, I don't know. But guess what? He did, and he was like, I'm going to come to life three days later. And then he died, and everyone was like, well, now what? Which is why we call it Silent Saturday, because everyone just sat around like, well, that's lame. But I don't know if you know those or not about our faith, but there's this holiday we celebrate every year called Easter, because everything God says happens. His word does not return void. And so three days later, Jesus pops up. Hi, guys. It didn't happen that way. Read your Bible. And I want you to know this about yourselves. There's a calling on your life. God is speaking to you. Listen. Figure out where you're steering your ark. Because if you're going to park your ark in the Target parking lot and get out and go shopping and hope that your kids are just going to stay there, like, has anyone ever walked out of the house without their children and just said, follow along like little ducks? I have three kids, and I always say, okay, guys, we're going to church. And then I get in the car, and I close the door, and I turn the AC on because it's hot in Florida. And it's usually like another eight minutes, and I've usually gotten back out of the car twice before I actually leave for church. 
because someone forgot their shoes or didn't comb their hair or wanted to brush their teeth or just didn't hear me say we're leaving or any number of other reasons because children need to be led. They just do. And so you need to lead them. Don't assume that other people are doing it. Don't assume that Sunday school is doing it. Don't assume that church leaders are doing it. Don't assume the youth pastor, if there is one, don't assume they're doing that. Don't assume that when you send them off to college, their foundations are firm. Don't do that. Because God didn't just say, Noah, get on the boat and we're going to figure things out. He said, take your wife, take your kids, get on the boat. Because your family, the next generation, is important. The order of things should be God, and then your spouse, and then your children. It's a system. Follow the system. So, last one, 14% of U.S. Christians believe marriage is obsolete. Just for like a little, well, the Bible says to stay married. I'm not saying like there aren't biblical reasons for divorce, because Jesus gave a reason for divorce. But what I want you to understand is there are people that think just the whole idea is wrong. And so if you're one of those people, I'm sorry, don't raise your hand, but maybe we can talk about it afterwards. But I want you to understand God is forgiving and God gives us grace in ways that you can't even begin to understand. And we need to step into that more often and forgive ourselves and know that we're just not qualified because who we are is not righteous people. But who Noah was was not a righteous person. He had favor from God because God is good, not because Noah was. And so I'm not against children's Bibles. Um, I am, however, against letting other things influence kids if I'm not going to influence them. And so maybe, maybe take up the mantle of building an ark and see what that does for you. But we need to understand the reality of who we are. We are a broken people. It says it twice. Genesis 6-5 says every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart. And then God explains a bunch of other stuff. And then in verse 11 and 12, he says it again. Just in case you weren't sure, the earth was corrupt in God's sight and full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become. For all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. And God gives no instructions. That's not a good scene. That's not a good place to live. But it hasn't changed. Things are still bad. And you just step into what God's calling from you. We have broken people. And so what does that produce? It produces broken families. Genesis 7, which we didn't read today. If you look at the first verse of Genesis 7, if you still have your Bibles open, it says, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Or like I said earlier, when it says found, that same word can be given. I've given you grace in this generation. I have decided that your family, even though it's not the greatest, even though it's not qualified, even though your kids are adults, with wives, you still have more to teach them, because I still have more to teach you. This is an important fact that I don't want you guys to let go of. You are always, always going to be teaching your children something. They have not reached an age where they're just too old and you can't teach them that, like you can't teach an old dog new tricks thing. Maybe it's true for dogs. I, I came to the Lord at 31. I'm not, gonna, I'm not here to give you my testimony. Maybe we'll talk about that a little bit in the evening service when we do the, the Q&A, but for now, testimony time, not right now. But what I will tell you is, at 31, I had done a lot of things. I was not a believer. I was the opposite of a believer. I did a lot of really awful things when I was young, and God was like, that guy, he's going to teach my people. I'd raised my kids as a pagan in a, in a world full of pagans, and then God was like, do it differently. And so it's, you're not too late. If your kids are teenagers and they're just awful, I hear you, but it's not too late. And if your kids are really little and they just are just terrors, and you're like, I am just not qualified for this, I hear you. You're not, but God thinks you are. When things are really hard, and you're like, I just can't do this, you can't. But God can, because in your weakness, he is strong. Not in your weakness, you are strong. In your weakness, he is strong. God said, build a boat. He built a boat so big, he couldn't close the door himself. So God closed the door for him. That's a weird detail that a lot of people don't ever catch. Noah built a boat so big, he couldn't actually sail it. I don't know if you know this or not about boats, but when the doors open and the water rises, the water gets inside. Spoiler alert, in case you're not like a fan of boats, I don't know. Um, but God was like, hey, do what I'm telling you to. It'll be fine. And I imagine, you know, if, you, if there was like an expanded version of this section, Noah was probably like, yeah, but if the door's that big, I can't. And God's like, bro, just build a boat. And so if you're like, I don't know what to do. We, we have another child we weren't expecting. Or I don't know if I make enough money to raise my family in this new climate. Or gas prices are like $9,000 a gallon. And I just don't, just lead your family. 
that the book is for. You just trust in God and you lead your family. So here's what I want to do. There's another place in Exodus, Exodus 20. God gives us instruction. So I said this was an instruction manual that doesn't have literal instructions, but it sort of does. There's this thing called the Ten Commandments. We're going to read from it. Um, in the Ten Commandments, there's a particular one that I want to call your attention to. It says, you shall not make yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the, the third commandment, not to make idols. And I want to point this out. Noah lived in a society full of idol making. He was raised by parents who made idols. He was probably raising his kids to worship those very same idols. And then God was like, hey, new plan, friend. And, and Noah wasn't a believer yet, so he was probably like, what is happening? Somebody's talking. Looked at his wife. Was that you? She was like, what? God has a calling on your life. All you have to do is listen. And then God gets really clear. Hey, in a world full of idols, pay attention. Because you can't take a thing out of wood and then worship that. Because you made that thing. So just like the Lego example I made earlier, you wouldn't like make a house of Legos and then go, I could live in that. Somebody made that house really nice for me. You'd be silly because you made the house and it's too small for you. But God is greater. He's bigger. He knows what's going on. And all you have to do is listen. And so here's what I want to point out about this particular passage. He punishes the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now that sounds really aggressive. Why would he punish the children for the sins of the fathers? And so what I want you to hear in this particular passage is not that God is mean and punishes kids because their fathers did something wrong, but I want you to think about this. If you're just an absolute garbage dump of a father to your children, if you're the worst possible example, like you beat them and you like snort cocaine on the dining room table, and that's the, what they, how they grew up, what's their adult life look like? Is it cupcakes and rainbows? Probably not. Is their future wife like well prepared to have like equality? Probably not. So what God is saying in this commandment about idols is the things that you worship are what your children are going to learn to worship also, and so their life will be equal to or worse than yours. Because when you turn away from God, things get worse. The farther away you walk from him, the worse it gets. And so if you're walking real far from him, your children are learning to walk in the same direction, and it's further away. And they're younger, and they have more energy, and they're going to get further than you do. So who are you worshiping? Are you worshiping your job at the, at the expense of your family? Are you worshiping your free time at the expense of your wife? Because your kids are watching that, and they're learning what idols to worship. I want you to think about that. The next time you haven't seen your wife or your kids in a really long time, but you're super tired and your kids are like, do you want to play a game with me? And you're like, man, I'm just really tired, but you haven't seen them all day. That's an example you're setting. And I'm not saying it's not okay to be tired. What I am saying is, what are you worshiping? Because Noah had to build a giant ark and his family probably thought he was nuts. But he was like, I am being obedient, period. Figure it out. Look inside your heart. If you get that weird feeling, and I say this from experience, there are times where my kids are like, hey dad, do you want to go throw a ball around? And I just don't want to, I'm not tired. I haven't, like, worked all day, and I'm just exhausted. I don't have, like, a broken shoulder. I'm not in a wheelchair. I'm just like, I don't want to. And they walk away with their head down. Dad's ever had that experience? You feel bad, but you push through it. You're like, I just want to throw a ball right now. I'm allowed to not want to throw a baseball, for goodness sake. But it's not, that's not the point. The point is not that you're allowed to not throw a baseball. The point is there's only so many days, and then they're adults, and that's the example that you set for them. And so fathers are causing punishments for their children because the next generation of kids are also not getting balls thrown around. Daughters are also not having tea parties. There's also not family dinners and movie nights and all those things because you just didn't want to because you were tired. And so you're allowed to be tired, man. I hear you. Things are exhausting. Work is hard. But that's what we were made for. That's what we were made for. Man was made to work the ground. I don't know for what that's worth. But it causes generational problems. But God's he's good and he's faithful. So look what happens. He shows love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. Think about the impact that you're going to have, the legacy that you leave for your children. Think about the amazingness that you're going to cause if your kids are like, Dad, you want to throw a ball around? And you're just dead tired. And you, you be honest with them. Son, I'm exhausted. It's been a long work week, and, and Daddy's just tired. 
So I'll tell you what, can we throw a ball around for five minutes and then you and I can just sit in the grass together and be tired together? Can we do that? What example does that show? You're tired, but they're important. It's a calling that God's placed on your life. Live into it. That's all I'm saying. And that's all God is saying, because you're going to worship something. I would suggest worship him because he's got really good ideas. And his ideas tend to come true because he's sovereign. And so when God's like, hey, Noah, build the ark, he was like, I mean, we're in the desert. It doesn't rain like ever. In fact, I don't know what rain is. It's a word I've never heard before. It's brand new. But you're God, and you're like, build an ark. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to do that. Sure, why not? I'm going to get my family involved because I can't build this thing by myself. And he does, and he convinces them that it's okay, and they build it, and then all of a sudden it starts raining, and he goes, hey, guys, hop in, grab all your pets. Actually, don't. God's got that. And everyone else is like, what, what is happening? And people's wives are like, grab umbrellas. And they're like, what's an umbrella? And then it starts raining, and the water just doesn't stop. And Noah's like, thanks, God. Thanks for having me. And so my encouragement to you guys is that that thanks God, thanks for having me moment that came from Noah really obviously when everything started getting wet might not come for you until your kids have kids. It might not. But the time that you take when you're super tired, when you just don't feel like it, the time that you took to show them what a godly man looks like, to show your wife what a godly man should be when your kids are small, makes a difference that will echo for thousands of generations. Can you imagine what thousands of generations of your family looks like if they're all walking with God? Think about what that actually means. Like that hurts my brain to think about. I'm a first-generation Christian, so is my wife, and so our family is new. And I look at my parents, and I look at her parents, who are maybe watching, but probably not. And if they are, I'm about to get in trouble when I get home. But the reality is that generational curses can be broken. And that's what he's talking about in these passages. When you look at Exodus 20 and he talks about idols, he's talking about generational curses. Break yours. Do something different. Build a boat. It doesn't say what Noah's job was, but chances are he wasn't a woodworking boat builder in the middle of the desert. And so I'm not suggesting you're prepared for whatever God's calling you to. I'm not saying that. If your kid's like, I want to play football, and you're like, I do not like sports. There's this really neat tool called the internet. Learn a minute. I'm not saying coach the team. I'm just not, I'm not saying that. Throw the game, though. Anyway. So think about this. What is the legacy you're leaving? Are you, are you watching your kids and their kids and their kids get punished to the third and fourth generation? Or are you watching thousands of people know and walk with Jesus? That is a question I want you to ask yourself every single day. Get up in the morning, look at yourself in the mirror, and go, when my children's 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 children think about what I did for their family, what does that mean? Think about that. And then, while you're thinking about that, we're going to move on to what family discipleship actually looks like. Because I've given you a lot of, like, general things to think about, but I want to kind of zero in. What does family discipleship actually look like? And so the question is, what is discipleship? Here's what it is. Jesus gave us, gave us a really, really good model. He had 12 disciples. He taught those disciples. But what it doesn't actually say is what their day-to-day -day life looked like. There are two kinds of teaching. There's the kind of teaching that we see in our society today. It's called the industrial model. It's a bunch of kids facing one teacher who just orates. They just talk. That's the industrial model. It's called an industrial model for the same reason we have the industrial revolution. Things were industrious. They were done effectively. It was done in large quantities. Jesus was like, I have a different plan. Well before the Industrial Revolution. He said, I'm going to do things. You're going to watch. Ask questions if you're confused. Does it sound a lot like parenting to you? Am I suggesting that like your toddler is going to help you fix your car? Nope. But if you're like, hey, bud, sit right there. Maybe I need you to hand me that tool. Maybe. Maybe that's what Jesus was doing. He walked around, he fed the disciples, he fed the people who were listening to him talk. But if you really read through it, he cared for them in a personal and, and intimate way. They lived with him, they traveled with him. He did the feeding of the 5,000, then they got on a boat. And he was like, guys, did that make sense? And they were like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And Jesus, I like to think of him a little sarcastically. He's like, you still don't get it. Let me re-explain it, hold on. He did the same thing with the parable of the sower. He tells the parable, and then his disciples are like, I just, what on earth are you talking about, dude? Okay, let me explain it to you. You ever had that moment with your kids, you finish telling them something and they're like, 
and you really just want to be like, were you paying any attention at all? I'm just, I'm done. Just re-explain it. Or just do it and let them see you. I'm going to give you one really weird example. It's about family dinner. You ever set up something and you say you must eat everything on your plate? You, your plate must be empty or you can't watch TV afterwards or like insert your own like family consequence at the end or you can't play video games after or you can't go out with your friends or whatever afterwards. That's not how God does things. And so what I'm suggesting to you is maybe try something different. God's not like, live up to my standard or else. God's like, hey, you're going to screw this up. So the next time that you have an opportunity to show this little lesson, what does discipleship look like? Here's what discipleship looks like. I need you to clear your plate before you run outside and play. Dad, I'm full, but I want to go outside and play. Cool. Switch plates with them. Give them your empty plate. Eat their chicken nuggets that are cold and half eaten. And say, look, your plate's empty. Have fun. Because Noah was part of the crooked generation. He was part of the world that was just falling apart. And God said, hey, here's a boat. Here's the plans for the boat. Here's a heads up. You're going to need a boat. Build the boat. And then when everything else was done and discipleship was done and God was finished training Noah and Jesus was finished training the disciples, he left, but he gave them really good plans and they were prepared. And so what I'm suggesting for you guys today, especially men, but parents in general, you're prepared, even if you don't feel like it, because you're given instructions by the only person who has any idea what's going on. So what is discipleship? It's leading well to the best of your ability and teaching through example. So who disciples who? This is a big deal. This is maybe something that people don't tend to think about, but I want you to think about it because sometimes men go to work, women leave the family at home, men come home because they provide. And my suggestion is not that you shouldn't do that, like work, have a job, like don't hear me wrong. Um, but there are certain things that you are also supposed to provide. And so when we think about who disciples who, who do men disciple? Men can disciple other men. Like you should have guys in your life that are further ahead of the, in the Christian walk than you. And you should have men in your life that are further behind in the Christian walk than you. And you should be bringing them along. That is what your circle should look like. That's how the Bible explains it. There's always older men and younger men. If you look at any of Paul's letters, older men, younger men. They're all together. They're hanging out. Disciple other men. You should be discipling your wives. If you woke up this morning and you were like, I just don't know if I want to go to church today, and your wife was like, get out of bed, you were setting a bad example. Because maybe your kids don't see that, but your kids probably see the look on your face as you're driving and you just don't want to be driving in that direction. You just want to be fishing or you want to be wherever. And that's fine. You can be mad at me if you want to. I love fishing. But God calls you to gather. This is important. You should be discipling your children, especially your sons. You should be showing them what it looks like to lead well. You should be showing them who to take care of and who not to take care of, which if you're questioning that statement, there's no one you don't take care of because you're men and your job is to look after things. When we were created, God said, I need someone to take care of this thing I've made. He wasn't like, bulls are going to take care of the farms. and He didn't like list out individual responsibilities. You know what he did? He said, men are going to work on this. And then men need help, and so he gave them wives. And so I'm not saying wives are not important because both of us are necessary. But there is a calling on your life if you're a man to lead in a particular way. So that's what men are supposed to be doing. That's, that's men. Women should be discipling other women because the same example I gave for men is true for women. Women in the Bible, they're older women, younger women. Women who are wiser, women who are less wise. Find some people who are further ahead than you. Find some people who are further behind than you and teach them. Teach them everything you know. Lead them well. You should be discipling your children, especially your daughters. How, how do you love your husband? I'm not suggesting that like your husband is perfect. I mean, unless he is, but I'm just going to take a shot at it and say he's probably not. I'm not perfect. I don't expect my wife to pretend that I'm perfect. I expect her to correct me in, in things if I'm walking astray, because we both follow the same instruction manual. And I would expect that if I'm losing my temper, she's going to say, hey, love is patient. Get your act together, dude. I would expect that. And you should be able to do that for your husband, but you should be modeling for your children. Hey, you need to find a man who's going to take that correction. You need to find a man who's going to do his best to live the way that God tells him to live. That's what you should be looking for. So if, you're, if the only thing your daughter ever sees you do to your husband is complain that his dirty shoes are on the couch, you are giving a really bad example of what wiping looks like. Is that a, is that a bad verb? Wiping? I don't know. Anyway, 
Um, so discipleship is the way that you live your life. It's not just teaching. So there's the industrial model. You can just orate to your kids, but I I'm really good at orating. I've talked to my kids for hours, and at the end result, what I find is not that they just heard every word that I said, but that they thought they were in trouble. So think about how you're leading, because if you're just leading by saying a lot of words, that's cool. But like, maybe try to do the things. Maybe, maybe try to do the things, see if that works out. Maybe you'll get a different example. And then there's these two questions that, that maybe are the elephants in the room. What if I'm not married? What if my kids are already grown up? The family that you are a part of as a spiritual leader is God's family. Your wife is his daughter. Your children are his daughters and sons, which means if you're not married, your friends are his daughters and sons. The other mothers, the widows, the elderly, they're all his daughters and his sons. And if you're a man, your job is to care for those people. So care for those people. It applies. If your kids are grown, press into their, grand, their kids, your grandkids. Not to make your kids' lives harder. That's not your chance to be like, I'm going to fill them up with sugar and send them home. I'll show you what it's like to have hyped up kids. You know how I know that they know what it's like to have hyped up kids? Because there's more candy on the shelves now than there has ever been. There's sugar in everything. So when you're like, I'm going to fill your kids with sugar because I'm the grandpa and I can do that. Good for you. But like, wouldn't that have pissed you off? Can I say that in God's house? Wouldn't that have like really aggravated you? Why would you do that? I'm just saying, think about the legacy you're leaving. Because then what happens? You're now teaching your kids that that's how grandparents act. So now their kids are going to hate them for filling their grandkids with sugar the same way that it's just crazy how things happen because God punishes the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. That's how it works. It's not like a weird mystery he's telling you in his book. He's like, hey, by the way, if you do things wrong, I'm going to make you notice that it's wrong. Why do you act surprised? Things are hard? Duh. My kids don't listen. They're sinful? Weird. Do you follow all the rules? It's your house. You made the rules. Do you even follow all the rules? If you have a bedtime? When was the last time you were like, I need to, like this, I did this last night. I told myself I'd go to bed by midnight so I'd get a decent amount of sleep because I'm sort of jet lagged a little bit. You know what time I went to bed last night? Anyone want to guess? It was midnight. We don't even follow our own rules. You want your kids to be perfect? Give them a little grace. Tell them when you mess up. Tell them you broke a rule. Wouldn't that be a cool way of discipling things? Or when you don't have children. What if you served in the youth group? What if you poured all your biblical knowledge into other people's kids? What if you helped? I'm just saying. Something to think about. Have you ever seen this? These two phrases, these are phrases that people get super aggravated at. The word headship, people get like, meh. So I want to explain what headship means. It does not mean authority over, which is why I'm okay to put it on the screen. There's an idea that God lays out for us. The idea is singular headship, plural leadership. God gives a calling to man. He says, hey, you're in charge of this. This is your responsibility. And then he says, hey, you guys are going to do this together. You're responsible for doing it together. So when your kids are just acting bananas and you're like, I didn't teach them that, I was at work. Okay. Have you ever read Genesis 3? I'm not going to do it now, but take a minute. Go back to Genesis 3. Like, really slow down and read it. Who has the conversation with the serpent? Eve has the conversation. She eats the fruit first. She gives some, I'm going to quote it because I know it by heart. She gave some to her husband who was with her. So I want to paint this picture for you. We're not going to go back. I'm just going to pantomime for a minute. Snake, serpent whatever, wife, husband. He stood there and he watched. You ever had a moment where you see your kids doing something that they're not supposed to and you're like, I should stop that? You ever wonder, like, maybe Adam should have stopped things? But, like, Eve was the one who did it. She ate the fruit first and she gave some to her husband, but then God shows up. Who does he come looking for? He comes looking for Adam. He says, what have you done? Because it was his responsibility to care for things. It was his responsibility. And so, men, I'm really sorry to tell you this. It is your responsibility to raise your families well. You do it with the kindness and love and, and grace that your wife gives you, and you do it with your wife, but ultimately, God gave you a responsibility. 
This is what Pastor Matt Chandler, he runs a, a church in Texas, he says it this way, headship is the unique leadership of the man in the work of establishing order or human flourishing. Things go really well when a godly man is doing what God has called him to do. Can you imagine if Noah was like, ah, an ark sounds like a cool idea, but what if we built a sailboat? It's still a boat. It's sort of the same. Not, it's not. Follow the calling God placed on your life. That's all I'm saying. Because things will turn out okay. Because God will bless your family for generations. It's said a thousand generations of those who follow his commandments. Is that unreal to you, the number comparison? I'm going to punish the children for three or four generations. But if you follow and you listen, a thousand generations? Holy guacamole, that's a lot. So in Ephesians, it says God placed all things under his feet, him being Jesus, his feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So all I'm saying is live like Jesus. Not perfectly, but use him as an example because that's, that's the point. He comes and he says, be, part, be holy as my Father in heaven is holy. And then he knows that you're not going to, and so he handles that also. So God said, build an ark. And then he knows that the ark's going to be just enough. He puts all the animals in, and Noah probably looks at the door and goes, I mean, it's, can I get can somebody help? You just have to trust that God's going to fill in the spaces where you're not capable. Because he does. That's the evidence that we have is that he does. And so when you think about this idea, here's where you're not capable. There are some things men are just not super good at. And so family life is a husband and a wife. So you're responsible, but trust that your wife is capable of doing things in ways that you are just not. Lead together. Women, support your husbands. Husbands, support your wives. When you read the, the passage in Ephesians that says well, wives should submit to their husbands, that wasn't new contextually. Like, women were already submissive. But then it says, husbands, you should love your wives like Christ loved the church and give your life for her. That was super offensive. So I know we live in like a, a feminist culture right now where women are like, submission is terrible. This is when people cancel me, so the YouTube channel is just going to crash right now. Um, but I want you to understand what Jesus was saying was, or what Paul was saying when he wrote that was, Jesus died. He gave everything for his church. And he was the head of the church, which is his body. You ever done anything intentionally wrong, knowing you were going to hurt yourself? Probably not. You ever had a thought like, I'm going to put my hand in this table saw? Because your brain's not going to go into the... No one's ever done that. That's crazy talk. You're not like, this is a good idea because my brain will be fine. No, you care for your hand because it's part of your body. That's important. Care for your body. Care for your family in the same way. Because that's what Jesus tells you to do and lead well from that. So this is what the leadership looks like. God said to Noah, hey, here's my plan. Pay attention. Lead your family. Noah says, all right. He never lists his wife's name, so I just know I'm wife. That feel, feels weird when you look at it like that, but that's what the Bible says. Noah and his wife, lead your sons. Help me build the boat, he said to his kids. His kids were like, but rain? Is that even a thing? Think about how his kids must have felt. Dad, that's not, that's not a thing. Water doesn't fall from the sky, it just doesn't. And he was like, listen, there's a God, and that God loves you, and God has a plan for your life. Just follow it. Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 4, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may have a long life on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. Instead, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Why do you think that it's so specific? Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. It doesn't say parents. It says fathers. Because mothers, this is not like a get-out-of-jail-free card, but mothers are the, the, usually the ones that are really good emotionally. Fathers are usually the emotionally challenged in the group. If you're, if you're married to a man who's really good emotionally, God bless you and God bless him. But most men struggle with that. And so the Bible's really clear. Hey, don't be nasty to your kids, because that's going to teach them a lot about how to be kids. That's going to teach them a lot about how to be adults. Bring them up in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. Because if they learn how to follow his word, things are going to go well in their family, and their family's family, and their family's family, and they're going to look back at you and go, what an example he left for our family. 
And that's what I want you to think about. Remember I had a slide, said family, discipleship, and the slide right after that, what is your legacy? This is a big deal, you guys. We're gonna, we're gonna land the plane uh, by looking at Genesis 8. I want you to see the order of things in Genesis 8, if you fill out your Bibles, verses 15 through 21. Uh, verse 15, God speaks. It says, God said to Noah, come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. He doesn't just say, everyone come out. You lead your wife. You together are then leading your sons in the way that they should do things. They're leading their wives. There's a process. Then they were obedient. Verse 18, Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his, his sons' wives. And then all the animals and the creatures moved along the ground. So the family obeys and creation obeys. When you do things in the right order, things just seem to go better. You ever read the instructions on how to build something from Ikea, which I guess is a bad example because their instructions are awful. But if you've ever started on page 12 instead of page 2, you're going to have a lot more trouble. Just follow the directions. Just do what it says. But I want you to see how this ends. So Genesis 8, verse 19 is when creation obeys. And then what do they do? They have dirt. Verse 20, Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord had a, smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. Never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. They had church. They worshiped God because they understood. They figured it out. If I pay attention, if I listen, things go well. Things go better for me if I let God lead. I want to do a, a little side-by-side. Noah was the head of his family. Jesus is the head of this family. So just like Noah's family paid attention, Pay attention to who's leading you. Let Jesus lead you. Noah was a sinful-hearted human head of his family of servants. Jesus was a servant-hearted head of his family of sinners. Noah was a signpost pointing to the day of judgment with a flood. And for the record, nobody believed him. But if you have any benefit that you can look back on from this story, it happened. Jesus is not a signpost, but he is coming back, and there is a judgment. And if there's a calling on your life, then it's probably somewhere near the top of the list of things he's going to judge you for. So if you're a man, there's a calling on your life. You're going to be judged on it. How are you doing? Noah was promised with a rainbow that the world wouldn't be destroyed again because of sin. We were promised, Jesus promised us with a cross that he would remake the world without sin. Man, if that isn't good news, that you can look forward to for all the mistakes that you made, if you're trying to do your best and you're leading a godly life and you just mess up sometimes and that's okay, and then God's going to make all things new and you're going to stand arm in arm with your wife and your kids and things are just going to be great because it's going to be your kids and their 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 kids and, their kids and they're all just going to stand there and smile at Jesus. That's a really big deal. And so I'm going I'm to close with this. There is a way in which you can steer anything. Not necessarily just an arc. It could be a plane. It could be a car. It could be a bicycle. It could be your physical body as you walk down the street. But no matter which way you're steering, there is a destination. And Noah's family was building an ark because they knew that the destination was a flood that they wanted to be on the right side of. And so what I want you to think about as you're driving home, steering your vehicle, with your ark, your ark full of your animals, especially if the kids are young. I want you to think about the destination. Because there's really only two places you can end up ultimately, and I really want what's best for all of your family. I care about all of you guys. I don't know you personally, but I love you because God loves you. Where are you steering your ark? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for all that you do for us. Thank you for the example that you set for us in your son. Thank you for the explanation you give of how we're going to fail and how you step into the gap when we do pick us back up for walking with us in dark valleys and for climbing with us to the top of high mountains. We thank you, God, that you are so faithful to us. And we just ask that you would continue to show off, that you would continue to show your glory to us, that you would help us to, to be blessed for generations, help us to press into who you are every single day, help us to step into the calling you have on our lives. We thank you, we praise you for it. 
and it's in your beautiful name I pray. Amen.